Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to New Scientist Weekly. This podcast brings you the most important, startling or just plain weird happenings in the world of science. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm podcast editor at New Scientist. And I'm news editor Penny Sarchet. Before we get started, we thought you should know this book could save your life. That's the title of the book and its claim. It's a myth-busting, evidence-based guide to living healthier and living longer. Including the only reliable hangover cure, the best thing to drink after a workout, the only reliable proven way to increase lifespan, the truth about detoxifying, and much more. Find out how you too can live longer, better, in This Book Could Save Your Life, out now from all good bookshops and online services. And if you buy it at our shop at shop.newscientist.com with the code PODCAST10, you get 10% off. Joining us on the panel today are New Scientist journalists Adam Vaughan and Jacob Aaron. Adam is our chief reporter and Jacob is our deputy news editor. Hello. Hello. We want to devote a good bit of time today to the Wuhan coronavirus. It's spreading between people. China has locked down more than a dozen cities. It's killed more than 170 people and infected more than 7,000. Models predict it will have infected 200,000 people by the time you hear this show. Several countries, including the UK, are quarantining people coming back from Wuhan province. Penny, you're all over this story. Tell us first about why it's a big deal. I think the really surprising thing is um, just how quickly the outbreak appears to have exploded. Um, So I think actually as of this morning we're nearing um, 9,000 confirmed cases and it seems to be occurring in every mainland Chinese province. Whereas this time last week there was only 500 cases and we were probably talking about only about three regions of China so it really feels like it's exploding. And those kinds of numbers suggest it's accelerating much faster than SARS or MERS, which were related viruses. Although so far, uh, fortunately, it doesn't appear to be quite as deadly. However, earlier this week, Chinese authorities suggested that the virus may actually be able to spread before um, a person even starts showing symptoms. There isn't too much evidence yet that that is actually happening. But if that does turn out to be the case, uh, that could be a real problem. Mm. Um, I've heard some people say that this could be a a kind of good dress rehearsal for when a really nasty one hits. Um, What's your take on that? Mine is that um, that this isn't a dress rehearsal. Uh, This has the full potential to become a pandemic. So all that would really take is for the virus to start um, spreading uh, properly in more than one country, so outside of China. And there have already been a few cases in a few countries where there seems to have been person-to-person transmission. Um, So if any of those just really got going... 
that that could be a, this could be a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about a vaccine? I've heard uh, someone at Imperial say that they they have what they need to make a vaccine now. Is that what we need to do? Um, I think it's really great. Uh, there's multiple teams working on this. I think some in Russia, some in America as well. And it's really important that that work is happening. Um, but it's always going to take time to develop a vaccine and, and test it and make sure it's safe. Um, I think really the earliest we could see um, it being trialled on people would be something like June or July. Um, so there's a lot of damage the virus could do in the meantime. Uh, so really, at the moment, while it's good that that science is going on um, behind the scenes, as it were, um, containment has to be the main issue right now. So one one thing I've seen people saying is that uh, China's not doing a, a good job of, of handling this outbreak. But on the other side, they seem to be, you know, they've built an entire hospital mm. in, in a couple of weeks. It's sort of a demonstration of what the political system in China is capable of. Do you think China is is doing a good job? Yeah, I mean, um, the World Health Organization keeps actually praising China. So um, the the Chinese authorities did actually report this outbreak very soon after it got started back in December when it was just a few cases. And they've been giving um, extensive daily updates about the situation there. Um, The way they've locked down various cities and the whole state of Hubei is um, unprecedented. So um, I think that's kind of unfair. Um, There's this kind of um, suspicion I guess um, the the Chinese government is hiding numbers or or somehow sort of downplaying the epidemic, but there's no sort of evidence that they're really doing that. I do think um, there's probably uh, loads more cases that are going unreported, but that's probably more to do with just the difficulty of it's a fast moving situation and they're not necessarily picking them all up. So I think um, I, th- I think some of this is people mistrust China as a state anyway but um, it's hard to know if if the UK or the US or any other country would have done as good a job uh, as they have. Penny, I've heard some people uh, sort of criticising China saying it for, you know, as you say, it's unprecedented there's about 50 million people on lockdown there's some people who seem to sort of say that actually sort of such a draconian response could have a negative effect, you know you push people underground as it were, people don't present. Do you, do you think there's any any, do you think that's a yeah. fair criticism or not? I mean, I think, um, I guess what I'd be most worried about is um, it's hard to know, like, do they have enough food? Like, when these um, whole um, cities are locked down that way and people can't get in and out, I've no idea what the conditions really are like for those people. Um, I know the Chinese authorities are saying they're doing their best to step up supplies and make sure you don't get black market pricing and that kind of thing, but you can only imagine the kind of panic that must be going on. And do we know any more about um, how this virus arose. We know it came from a live food market, right? But do we know what animal it came from yet? Yeah, it's it's a bit mysterious actually because it seems or a lot of the early cases seem to all track back to that market, although the first one doesn't seem to be connected, so there's still a bit of a mystery there. Um, but coronaviruses, um, they're found in all kinds of other animals, um, so it's been suggested um, it very probably could have come from a bat, uh, maybe via a mink or snake, and, and these are all animals that were reportedly at this market. There's different sort of scientific methods you can use to try to work that out and um, there isn't really agreement yet. I mean obviously it's a it's a cultural and a societal decision to have live food markets but this seems to me at least to be a good reason to to ban the things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously there's an animal welfare issue about um, whether it's really a, a fair thing to be doing, to be having live animals in markets, especially wildlife as well. There's a real conservation issue there. Um, but experts have been warning about these kinds of markets for so long. Um, so that this bringing wildlife and farmed animals and people into a confined space regularly um, is just sort of asking for trouble to some extent with infection. Um, and so there have been many warnings about that, uh, not least because 
because we know that uh, live fowl markets are a real problem quite regularly when it comes to bird flu. Mm. Like you say, there's a conservation side to it as well. I mean, those markets are well known for being part of the sort of billions of dollars illegal wildlife mm-hmm. trade, things like pangolins often traded at those sort of markets as well so that's another bonus if you shut these down yeah I mean, it's unlikely to be long lasting though is it i suppose but you can see why conservation charities are quite keen to sort of start spreading that message at this point because it, it is a time when people are really talking about mm. this one thing i'm struggling with is how worried i personally as you know a healthy person living in the uk should be worrying about this you yeah know, obviously there's a huge impact for the people in china it is spreading to other countries but it seems like there's a bit of a panic going on for for people here. Yeah, I've definitely seen um, people on telly sort of really losing, getting very anxious about it. I think um, realistically, if you're in a country where it's not spreading, which which is the case for most countries at the moment, um, you don't need to worry yet. The only time I would worry is is if you've recently come back from the, an affected region or, or are living with someone who has. But at the moment, um, especially for us, it's um, Northern Hemisphere, it's flu season. So um, I would probably recommend just taking the normal measures that we're all supposed to take at this time of year anyway. So some of them are really hard. Like um, the one I always struggle with is you're not supposed to uh, touch your face throughout the day, particularly your mouth and eyes, which people do all day. Um, Uh, Wash your hands before eating and when you get home, don't shake hands with people in the winter, find an excuse to be rude um, and really don't go to work if you feel sick. And if anyone does feel sick, especially uh, with a fever and difficulty breathing, do seek urgent medical advice, but do it over the phone first. So don't just go to your doctor and and spread it around before you know what you've got. Uh, and could it mutate and become even more deadly? That, that's the big fear, is that it could hybridise with... We already have some human coronaviruses and, and they don't actually cause that much of a problem, usually just a minor cold, but were it to cross with one of those or were it to mutate quite a lot, it could become better adapted. And the, the fear there is that um, then it could spread from person to person much more easily. It's really early days, but so far the WHO says there's no sign that it's really mutating. It seems to be quite stable, um, so basically we're just crossing our fingers that remains the case um about the masks one thing you mentioned about people touching their face and one thing that people in japan when they wear the masks they say it's not so much to prevent the infection of the thing but to stop you touching your face Mm. and your nose so much um so is there any point wearing a mask oh well so um those surgical masks, the ones that aren't kind of completely sealed over your face, um, they don't cover your eyes, which is still a, a main infection route. So um, there's still plenty of... You, you probably rub your eyes multiple times a day without realising it. But also there's a real concern. Uh, not only do you know you can still get se- sick while wearing these things, um, but also these are really, really important for healthcare workers. So there's a real worry in countries like the US now that there's just going to be a run on these kinds of things and we're going to run out of supplies for the people who really actually need them. So if you can... Actually you just try to remember not to touch your face and to wash your hands regularly and, and leave the medical equipment to the medical professionals. That's the better thing to do. Aha! Now that noise is our sci-fi alert. That means something's happened in the news this week that's already been documented in science fiction. This week, it's the news that three different teams have added human genes to pigs in order to create donor organs that won't get rejected. The idea is that we solve the shortage of donated organs by using pigs and get round the problem of having to take immunosuppressant drugs forever after a transplant. Uh, One group's added eight human genes to pigs and deleted three, and then to test their work they transplanted the skin of the pig onto a monkey, uh, and it didn't get rejected. Now, all this has been prefigured in Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake from 2004. Uh, She created the Pigoon, and uh, she writes, 
The goal of the Pigoon project was to grow an assortment of foolproof human tissue organs in a transgenic knockout pig host, organs that could transplant smoothly and avoid rejections. So pigoons in her book were used to provide organs for rich people, but of course it all goes horribly wrong and the pigoons turn on their human tormentors. Moving from rampaging pigs to something completely different, this is the attempt to create a star in a bottle. Scientists say they are nearly ready to recreate nuclear fusion, the process that powers the sun, on Earth. They've been saying this nearly for, what, 50 years now? Uh, What's different now, Adam? Uh, so, well, yeah, as you, as you sort of allude to, the uh, fusion's always uh, 30 years around the corner is the sort of joke. But um, So fusion is, uh, we, know, we know what nuclear fission is, that's uh, dividing one atom into two and you get this huge release of energy. You know, usually you bombard it with uh, the atom with neutrons to make it do that. Fusion is slightly different. It's taking two lighter atoms and then you fuse them into a heavier one and then you get a massive release of energy uh, like the sun does. Um, so the... The thing with fusion, the reason it's very attractive is, well, there's a nearly unlimited fuel supply for starters. Um, You you just need a few grams of each of the um, isotopes that you put into it. um, But the uh, other thing is it does away with the big problem of waste, which no one has solved yet with nuclear fission. And, you know, the UK, which had the first nuclear power station in the world, you know, the waste from that from, you know, 60 years ago is still sitting in a higgledy-piggledy site up in up in Cumbria in the UK. Um, so what's new is uh, the Joint European Taurus. This is a Tokamak in Oxfordshire in the UK. Uh, it dates back to 1984. Um, did its first um, fusion experiments um, with deuterium and tritium in 1991 to basically show that fusion was possible. And then the last big one they did with um, those two, which is, you know, usually call, they usually talk about it as a DT reaction. The last big one was 97. And now there's going to be another one later this year. So it's not 30 years away. It's just 10 months away. Um, so, yeah. So in, in in November this year, they will be firing. Uh, they'll be pumping in the two hydrogen isotopes. Um, they've got magnets and they will heat it to ridiculous temperature of 100 million degrees centigrade. Um, and they will try and control the plasma um, using magnets in this t- in this donut shaped machine. That sounds awesome, but that that isn't solving nuclear fusion, right? That isn't that isn't. We're finally there. No, no, it's all solved. Climate changes, <laughs> yeah. changes are fixed. We're done. Great. We can all go, we can all go home now. Uh, no, this is a, this is. Let's be clear. This you know, So the problem with nuclear fusion so far is we've not reached the point of what's called break even. So this is the point where it's actually useful as an energy source because. All those magnets and all the rest of the equipment uses huge amount of energy. And so, like, you know, the one in 1997, for example, they put in 24 megawatts and they got out 16 megawatts. So you can see the problem there. Uh, now, the one later this year is not going to be, you know, this isn't the start of commercial fusion power or anything like that. That's decades away. This is going to provide really interesting research for a much bigger project called ITER which is this um, massive hole being built on the south of France, which is a much bigger tokamak, which should be able to break even. That's the idea. It should be able to one day produce 10 times as much uh, energy as you get in, put in. So, yeah, so that's the idea. So is the problem with fusion or the delays that we've had with fusion, is it because it's just been really badly managed at ITER? Or is it is it that it's just such a difficult problem it's taken longer than we thought? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. So, you know, fusion is just really hard controlling like super hot, excited gases, the plasma. 
is is really difficult and um the the part of what they're changing here is they're going to use different mater- there's new materials in the walls now at jet the um the one in oxfordshire so it used to be carbon based stuff like graphite now it's um they've got tungsten and beryllium and that should help uh, less of basically the, the fuel for the reaction the the hydrogen that goes in less of that should get trapped in the walls and more of it should end up in the uh, in the actual re- reaction but the other side of it is as you sort of allude to you know eta dates back to the mid uh, mid noughties and there have been you know the timetable has been pushed back on when we'll get commercial fusion so you know originally the plan was for a sort of commercial plant after ITA around 2040 and then a couple of years ago that got put back to the early 2050s so you know there, there and there have been delays at ITA let's be clear the thing is we are on a bit of a deadline we, we need <laughs> clean power sources really by 2030 don't we so is it time to just give up on fusion? It's not going to be ready in time to to solve the climate crisis. So I guess uh, the the short answer is it's not going to it's not going to help us in the next ten years with the sort of carbon budget that you know pre- people like Greta Thunberg have you know popularised and made everyone sort of understand. Um, so no, it's not going to you know if in the meantime you know we're going to get our low carbon power from wind, solar, nuclear plant, existing fission nuclear plants, not fusion. I guess the really interesting thing is 2025, ETA will do the first plasma, and then that then they'll do um, about 10 years later. Hopefully, they'll do the first DT reaction, like this one that's being done in Jet, and that should be the one where they prove they can get more out than they put in. So we've got another 15 years to wait for that. But I guess the, I guess like longer term to answer your question, like longer, longer term, like second you know second half of this century is the earliest we're going to get like commercial fu- fusion power, right? And climate change is still going to be a thing then. If we're going to electrify like every sector in the world, which seems to be the way we're going, you might even have electric planes by then. You know, it's like that—that that could be a real thing by then. We're going to need some, so it might still be useful, but it's just not going to help us stave off, you know, catastrophe in the uh, short term. I just have this vision of, of, of ITER in, in in France, and it's surrounded by fields and fields of solar panels, which are what <laughs> we are actually using. <laughs> I think. I mean, this is the thing. I guess the question really is, uh, you know. In, it's not like wind and solar are going to stand still in those decades that fusion takes to develop. So I think there is a real risk that you know we finally crack it. And like all, all the you know all the people who've been working in this field, all the physicists and the scientists are delighted, but you know it has no real meaning for the rest of the world. I guess that has a real risk because you know those other technologies are just going to get cheaper, better, and we're going to solve issues like the intermittency of batteries and other storage technologies. Um, so that's. That is a bit of a that is a bit of an issue. Let's 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 hope there's still a need for fusion when we finally crack it. I think there will because you're going to need little fusion reactors to power businesses, to power spacecraft. Um, so it's worth pressing on with this. I think it's worth pressing on, and I, and I think the thing that tells you it's worth pressing on is it's not just Europeans who are interested in it. China is the big one on this. China, so the the feeling is that probably when we do get to commit, they are also putting huge money in this. They're, they're involved in ITER as well. And I think the feeling is that that is where the big use for it will be. And people like people get quite excited. You know, I say, oh, it won't be relevant because wind and solar will have got so huge by then. But actually, for like big industrial uses, you know, things like steel making and stuff like that, yeah, you can imagine that there will be a use for it. And now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we big up an organism that we particularly like and that we feel deserves more love. 
This week, I want to introduce you to the Asgard Archaea, which appear to be our simplest living, single-celled relatives. So you may recall that there are three branches of life, um, everything that's complicated like us and plants and fungi, we're all eukaryotes. Um, but the older branches of life are much simpler, there's bacteria and archaea, and we know that we must have evolved from one or both of these, and the big question is, well, where, where do we fit on that, that family tree? So one of the things that we know from looking at our cells is that um, probably one cell swallowed a bunch of other cells. So uh, the mitochondria we have in our cells that make energy, um, they look a lot like they were bacterium that got swallowed at some point. And so the question is, um, what's been doing the swallowing? And a recent flurry of studies suggest that we might actually have pinned down um, the kind of living relative, living descendant of uh, the ancestor that did it. So um, the Asgard Archaea, they were recently discovered group um, and they have uh, quite a lot of genes in common with uh, eukaryotes, the complex cells, so that's a really good hint. And now we're getting our first proper glimpses of what they look like and how they behave in the laboratory. So I can just show you this picture here. This one is called Promo. It, it doesn't look like Loki, the Asgard <laughs> no, superhero. Not, not quite. Although, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure why they're always named after kind of Norse and Greek gods. Um, this one's actually called uh, Prometheo Archaeum, and it's the first one that they've been able to grow in the lab. And um, these, it has these really long, spindly arms, which is really weird. Um, we'll tweet this picture from New Scientist Pod. And so that could be crucial, those arms. Um, what the suggestion is, is that uh, bacteria might um, get sort of swaddled and nestled in them and cooperate oh. closely. I know, it's cute. Um, and cooperate closely with these archaea. And the idea is maybe uh, it, historically uh, some bacteria cooperated so closely with the archaea that they just swallowed them up and that's how the first complex cell was made. So potentially this is um, our closest simple-celled relative. Now, we do have a tenuous link between Adam's fusion story and our next one, from recreating the sun on Earth to sending a spacecraft to the sun. Jacob, what's this one about? So this is the Solar Orbiter, which is scheduled to launch on the 7th of February from Cape Canaveral in Florida. It's a joint mission between uh, the European Space Agency, ESA, and NASA, uh, and it is heading to the sun. It's not actually the first spacecraft we're, we're uh, sending to the sun. There are a few already in orbit. You may have heard of the Parker Solar Probe, uh, which is actually attempting to touch the sun, by which we mean go not actually that close, but closer than we ever have before. Uh, oh, I thought but, it was touching, actually. Touching. <laughs> no, it, it's sort of touching the corona, which is the, the hot gases on, on the, the, the outside of the sun. Uh, but the solar orbiter is going to have a look at the poles of the sun. Yeah, so why do we care about the poles of the sun? Basically, we've never really got a, a proper look at them. Uh, that's because it's hard to go up and down in space relative to the, the plane of the solar system. Uh, so normally don't, we don't bother. And that means all of our views of the sun are, are you know, sort of side on from the, the view you would get from, from Earth. So we have lots of spacecraft looking at the sun, monitoring the sun. But we want to have a look at the poles because there are holes at the poles. They're not real holes, uh, but they're places where the sun is cooler and uh, less dense and charged particles can escape from within. OK, and is that where the, the wind comes from, the solar wind? Uh, yes, the, the solar wind comes uh, from these holes. It, it actually comes from all over the sun, but these holes are sort of particular hotspots for the wind to come out because of the way the magnetic field is aligned coming out of the holes. And that sends uh, solar wind charged particles blasting at the rest of the solar system. Mm. And um, one of the, the researchers at the European Space Agency said something lovely about the, how, how the, the sun creates the environment, of, the space environment of the 
solar system, right? Yeah, it's, it's weird to think about it, but the, the, the sun, the solar system, has weather. So there is a, a field of space weather that's devoted to, to monitoring the sun and, and actually looking at what the influence... Space weather. <laughs> love, love that. It's just hot all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, cold, I guess, space. When, when, the, the, when the we've the got our hot. fusion spacecraft, we can, <laughs> this will be a daily forecast. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, so uh, space weather is about looking at what's being uh, spat out by the sun... Its charged particles hit the magnetic field of Earth and, and other planets. Uh, but the thing we're really worried about are solar flares, so the, the, the you know, huge bursts coming out of the sun. And uh, in 1869, uh, one actually took down the, the telegraph systems on, on Earth. So you can think back then technology wasn't particularly widespread, but it was seriously affecting uh, the, the nascent communications network across the entire planet. You can imagine now the havoc that would be caused if a solar flare hit Earth electricity grids would go down, the internet would go down, and... No, not the internet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, we want to know if that's going to happen. What we'd actually be able to do about it is, is another question. We're, we're not going to be able to get out of the way of the sun. So, so if one happens, what, well, it's a really serious... We can't just turn everything off and turn it on again when the flare goes away. I mean, we could, we could turn off things to, in an attempt to protect them. You know, you'd have surge protectors and things like that. It might be that certain areas of the Earth would be uh, worst affected, but it would be a real serious problem that we would struggle to deal with. That picture that came out this week, the most detailed look at the sun ever, does that tell us anything we didn't know, or is it just amazing to look at? It's telling us about the really sort of minute structures on the sun. When I say minute, I mean 30 kilometres across, but for the sun, that, that's minute. And the, the more we learn about those features, the more we can learn about the sort of fluid dynamics on the sun, and that all feeds into our understanding of it. Cool. I'm glad it wasn't just me who was obsessed with the hypnotic little cell, yeah. cell, cells the side of te- size of Texas pulsing. Like we'll we'll tweet a picture of that image as well. So from the Wuhan outbreak to the fusion experiment and a mission to the sun, all by way of pigs with human genes and our distant microbial relatives. That's it for this week's episode of New Scientist Weekly. Thanks for listening. You can read all about these stories and much more from sci-fi movie reviews to uh, this week. We've got an in-depth analysis of the nature of reality at newscientist.com. And as a lovely reward for listening this far, we've got a special subscription offer for podcast listeners only. Get 10% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD10. Yes, just enter POD10 at the checkout on our website to get your subscription discount. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcasts at newscientist.com to let us know your thoughts and to tell us what you think the most interesting scientific news stories were this week. New episodes go live each Friday and watch this space for two more New Scientist podcasts launching soon. Uh, join us each week to keep up to date with the latest science breakthroughs and discoveries, uh, but mostly, let, let's face it, to massively impress your friends with your brilliant scientific knowledge. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.